Catherine Court is the president and publisher of Penguin, the Penguin USA Group. No, Penguin Books, Penguin which is Books. a division of Penguin USA. Okay, how's that work? Penguin USA is a company headed by the president of Penguin USA, is a woman called Susan Peterson Kennedy, and I report to her running two trade paperback divisions of the company. One is called Penguin Books. One is called Plume. What does Plume do? Plume is also a trade paperback list, a smaller list than Penguin, primarily a list geared probably to a younger readership with more of health and how-to component than Penguin. So welcome to the bibliophile. Thank you. Now, the reason I was so excited to run into you is that the Great Ideas series and more recently the Put Your Own Cover series out of England, the Penguin UK group, I thought were just brilliant, that just touching those covers of the, uh, of the Great Ideas series of short, small paperbacks just sent shivers down my spine. And so when we first met, and we're here at the uh, Book Expo America in New York, you directed my attention to some graphics or cartoons that you had commissioned for the covers of some great classic works. I have always been intrigued by contemporary art and what's going on in graphic art. And one day, probably three or four years ago now, I saw a story in the New York Times Sunday magazine that was illustrated by a man who I didn't know about called Chris Ware, who I gather by then was already quite famous. I suppose that's why he was in the New York Times. And said to our art director, Paul Buckley, gosh, this guy is really talented. I love this. And when the right book comes along, I wonder if he'd be interested in doing a book cover for us. And Paul said, well, you know, he's pretty famous and he's pretty expensive, and I don't know whether we could, we could pull that off. So I said, well, we'll see. So a few months later, a new translation of Candide came in, and it's one of my favorite books, and as you know, very funny. And Paul and I were having a conversation about what we would do for this book, which was going into Penguin Classics, but we suddenly both at the same moment almost said, maybe Chris Ware would like to do the cover for this book and that instead of putting it into the Black Spine Classics, we would do a special cover for it. So he approached Chris Ware, Chris Ware agreed to do it, and came up with an absolutely wonderful cover, which was the story of Candide, with all these wonderful little pieces of text pulled from the book. I mean, he worked incredibly hard on actually making sure that everything was accurate, and he did a little cast of characters, and the cover tells the story. And everybody who saw this cover, whether it was my then 16-year-old daughter or people passing through my office who'd been in the business, you know, 40 years, everybody said, oh my God, that is so gorgeous. So once we had that underway, we decided that maybe there were other things we could do. So we decided to do the portable Dorothy Parker, had a fabulous new cover. We did Ken Kesey, we did Anna Karenina. We just decided this was a whole new way of making a lot of really fabulous books much more attractive to readers who probably thought of the classics as pretty boring. You know, things you had to do in school. But more attractive to the buyers to make it less what, academic. traditional, academic. I wonder what they're wheeling by on that big tray. Sounds like the underground, doesn't it? Yes, it it does. Honestly, it's, uh, you know, 3,000 bottles of champagne for Mr. Greenspan. Uh, This whole comic cartoon uh, approach, was it 
in your mind that this would be a way to attract a younger audience to a traditionally pretty pretty good selling list? Well, I think as a publisher, you're always trying to find new ways to sell things you already own. And well, you don't even know. I mean, it, it, those those are many of them are copyright free. That's true. Some of our classics, of course, are books we own, like Steinbeck or Kerouac or Kesey and the great American sort of 20th century writers that are in copyright. And we're always finding ways. To, we want to refresh those so that they look more up-to-date and interesting for new readers who don't know those books. But I think there's a very big part of me that wants to try and get younger people to realize that actually reading books can be really fun and that the books themselves are very enjoyable and that to get them sort of addicted to reading, partly because I suppose I'm addicted to reading, so therefore I think it's a good thing. It's part of why I'm doing this, but also because I think sometimes I worry about our industry and about the fact that people just don't know very much. And and it's quite shocking that they don't know things, even though they seem to watch maybe a lot of TV, though actually my daughter doesn't and order her friends. But they're not reading books. They're listening to music. They're online, looking, you know, communicating with their friends a lot. Music is a very big thing, which I understand. But they don't really want to read that much. And I wonder sometimes whether it's because the books don't appeal to them or that they don't like... Or it's too much work. Or is it too solitary? Do they prefer to be with their peers and do things they can do together? As you know, one of the most enjoyable ways of spending time is to discuss great works as opposed to just talking about the weather or the news Mm. or the politics or... It's the kind of crap that most people exchange information on over the water cooler. Mm. I must say that when um, when my daughter was in, in sort of middle school and early high school, there were certain books that, that the group seemed to pass around, books they really, really liked, but not that many. So occasionally it would happen that they'd share a book and they'd all get excited by it, but not that often. And, and I sometimes think when we're not making that connection somehow as publishers. With the younger with readers. the younger readers, and that connection being basically just getting them excited about the content. Mm. Of to want to go into a bookstore and buy a book and read, read it, it and, and discuss and it, enjoy it, or be shocked by it, or hate it—it it doesn't really matter. But to have some sense of what's being written and what's being written about, I hope that some of this art is something that they really find exciting. And I know that leaving some of these books around my house, my daughter has definitely responded and wanted copies for her friends and things like. That sort of cool. So your role as a publisher then it's, it's tied in with well you're doing what you love and what you think is important which is trying to encourage the next generation to maintain the, the habit of reading. Exactly. This is what motivates you to... My, I mean my role is quite complicated in the sense that my primary role is to run a division of a company and make money for the corporation. You know yeah. we're owned by Pearson, they expect a lot and, uh, you know, we try and, and do the job that they want us to do. Part of being able to do that means to try and expand audiences, right, find new ways to get books, either new books or older books, to bigger readership, to younger people, so that because they're going to p- keep buying for many, many years, as opposed to, you know, if I sell a book to a 70-year-old, you don't have that long period ahead for most people. That's part of it. The other piece of my job is, you know, the acquisition, the finding of books, new talent, acquiring books that are really, really exciting, and then selling them, you know, selling them within the company to my colleagues, selling them to... Selling them as, as a, this is a something good. worth 
putting some yes. effort and we money should behind. do something good with this this person is talented and this person has something interesting to say that's Maybe. interesting though that's your role as a, as a the president and publisher of this division well i came up through the editorial process i am an editor not a marketing person or a sales person i came up through the editorial route until i became the the editor in chief and then the publisher and the president the reason i became those things was really because we began to make a lot of money and we were very successful and you know what happens you always get promoted out of what you're doing so well like professors becoming the dean of whatever instead of teaching the students yeah. i actually like both roles i like the financial side of it i'm very interested in the numbers i like the numbers i find business a really interesting subject but i also still am very excited about finding writers and sometimes finding writers and then working with one of my younger colleagues how do you find a new writer do you just read the read mostly most no mostly through agents i mean i have a group of agents who i'm very close to and who send me most of their good new stuff and and then i know other agents less well who will sometimes say this book is right for her because she published this other book so a lot of material is constantly flowing into the office i don't buy a lot of books myself because i can't handle too many books mm-hmm. um i'm probably publishing about 8 new hard covers a year and maybe 3 or 4 trade paperback originals you say i me personally but with but your division Well my hardcover books are published by Viking first and then become Penguin Paperbacks which is the company you're president of Penguin Paperbacks is the company I'm president yeah. of yes Viking is run by somebody else yeah. but we work very closely together Well typically a book will go hardcover and then soft Right soft though I'm publishing a lot of of quite literary fiction now straight into trade paperback mm-hmm. because I think the hardcover route is becoming so difficult and i don't want to publish a book that i think is wonderful and sell 4000 copies in a market the size of america it's just too depressing yeah. too depressing for writers so we're doing a lot more original publishing and we're doing quite a bit more now at the moment of of translation i'm i'm buying more books i haven't been finding as many interesting things here so i've been buying more from abroad so, so that's scouring been, the world for sort of looking for things yeah in different languages that can yeah. be translated yeah. into english Yeah, we've had quite a lot of success with a wonderful um Sicilian writer called Andrea Camilleri who's a great detective writer. And uh, I bought a series of novels of his that we are beginning to really build and we're doing them straight into paperback now because it was very hard in hardcover. And they're really building and all the backless ones are selling and he's really getting a reputation and there was a piece about him just recently in the New Yorker and so the word is out now and that's going to be very good for us. It's interesting to to find someone who's who writes a series of uh, mm. who's an un- unknown who's unknown in America, in America already very successful in Italy when I bought them. Okay. Very successful and in Germany. But the idea of course is that you can if you get them interested in one of their books then you've got mm. all of these other titles that you can roll out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're also publishing Donna Leon which I'm doing the paperbacks of and Morgan Entrick and Grove Atlantic is doing the hard covers and she has a huge backlist and wasn't published in America for a long time so we're bringing back all of her backlist and they're wonderful books and people love them so we're trying to you know to do things that's affordable you know put books out at 13 14 as yeah. opposed to you know hardcover prices and hope we can really get more people on board quicker to yeah. build an audience for these writers and you know when the next one comes out they're really eager to get it and, you know maybe at some point we will transfer to hardcover when they become really successful but i i think that um it's nice that people take more risks in what they read mm-hmm. you know at $14 it seems that you can do that speaking of risk What about the idea of going with a good writer who is really really good 
but you're not sure if they're going to sell, but you know that they're superb writer. How do you deal with that? Because you're under pressure to make money, but you're also, you've got an eye for, for what's really great literature. Mm. Well, I think the thing is when you run a list like Penguin, you have a great gift because we have a 4,000 title backlist. And a lot of those books are selling extremely well, and we're not spending a lot of money. We do have to produce them and ship them, but we don't have to spend a lot advertising or carting authors around the country. So that constant flow of money is sort of there, providing you know a lot of the profit every year. So, And then hopefully we have successful new books, hardcovers going into paperbacks that also do well. So there is, I think, some space in a list like Penguin to try some things that if they fail... Pearson isn't going to even notice. You know, they're so small in the larger scale of a penguin list, which is a big list, that really it doesn't make any dent. Whereas if you're a small publisher and you're publishing a small number of books, you know, a couple of books fail and your whole budget is in trouble. So I think I'm very lucky working for a company that, that over the years has established such a mighty backlist. So that gives you the, the, well, the, give, the freedom I think to it take does, a few more to risks. take more risks and yeah. to do some things that if I only could publish six books a year and I had two or three duds, I'd be out of business, wouldn't I, in two minutes? Yeah. But by having this huge list, so much of which is used as academic adoption material, I mean, the numbers on a Steinbeck or a Jack Kerouac are just huge. Because, as you say, they're, they're required books. reading. And uh, so they sell incredibly well and they don't stop. They're, they're always there, and, and we obviously do do things to re-promote them a lot, but not at the level of what you have to do with a brand-new author or brand-new book. So that's a great thing. And then sometimes you just... I think, I think the thing about editors is you have to have faith because it can take a long time. In, long in time. other words, for the public to accept for the somebody, genius of a yes, particular writer. Yes, and I mean, if, I, if you want an example, I, I suppose the, the greatest example that I have is that when I... I think in 1980, I published a trade paperback original of a book called Waiting for the Barbarians, which was oh, a book Jim which I thought was the work of genius, a work of genius. He's probably my favorite writer. Well, he's my most words. important author, and he's an amazing man. And when I published that book... He's a tough interview, probably one of the toughest interviews mm, you can imagine. Mm, yeah, it's very hard. He doesn't like to be interviewed. But that book... I thought was amazing, and it was actually reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review by Irving Howe, who said it was a masterpiece, which was one of the great days of my career. But even though that was a success, it took quite a long time. It was really disgrace that was the book. When he hit the big time, yes. When he won the booker, even though uh, it wasn't the first time he'd won. No, but that was the book, of course, where suddenly, like, the world understood that this man could write, you know, major books that would be alive forever. Well, I think Disgrace is probably a bit more accessible than the others, too, though. Yes. I mean, I don't... I mean, I think um, Waiting for the Barbarian is not an inaccessible book, but it is sort of foreign. I, I suppose this book is, is closer to sort of... The raw like, emotion. Yes, that and it's it extraordinary. Touches. Yes, and, and of course it has that straight narrative and it touches on so many very, very painful sort of human things. But even now, even though he's such a major writer and acknowledged all around the world and so forth, his sales are still relatively modest. I mean, we do very well with him and it's a big, exciting thing when a new book comes down the pike. But... But over the years, of course, these numbers will be quite great. Mm. I mean, well, he's, he's not the easiest writer either. Well, know? I think he would be much bigger commercially if he didn't, if he wasn't so private. If he would, if he went out and did which some of the promotion, which yeah. I admire, which I admire him for too.
I admire him for it. I understand why he doesn't want to do it. But the truth of the matter is that we could increase his sales exponentially, probably, if he agreed to do some publicity and stuff. We were talking about having to be patient with new writers, building building writers, and having to keep the faith, we were saying. Okay, I want to get you closer to the microphone. That's what I'm doing. Keeping, yeah. Keeping the faith is what I call it. Believing in someone, you know. Believing also in your... Uh, capacity to recognize great work too. You have to believe you're the one who's mm-hmm. putting your reputation on the line as well when you pick a, a writer who uh, who you say is great. Yes, yes. Editors always have their necks on the block. Yeah, you know it's funny mm-hmm. though. I was interviewing uh, a wonderful literary agent in uh, London, uh, Jill Coleridge. Oh, who's an old friend? Yes, she's great. And it's funny when you talk, uh, I hear Jill. Oh, really? Because it's it's the same sort of thing. She gets lots of manuscripts in the door. She has to pick and choose which ones she thinks are going to resonate with publishers and the public. And then once she gets behind that writer, her reputation is on the line when, when it comes to putting them in front of, of, of publishers and editors. Right. Exactly. Funny how clo- closely aligned your two roles are, and yet they're different. Yes, I mean, I suppose agents are first, usually, which is maybe harder. I mean, they, they don't have anybody else who said it's good, do they? they? they I yeah. at least have an agent who's probably said it's good. And incidentally, I guess in terms of the way that this business is conducted nowadays, it's almost impossible for a writer then to get to send you something directly. You get all of your stuff from agents. Yes, I mean, technically we're not meant to accept unsolicited manuscripts because the mounds of this stuff is so huge that we can't really cope with it. So we had to stop accepting. You didn't have to. It's just well, it just it, it became unrealistic to respond in a timely way, and we would have had to take on a lot of extra staff to deal with it. And frankly, when we did have a slush pile, as we called it, yeah. we would find one book in like ten years. So it's not a good investment to go through these piles of things. Sadly, I mean, it's sad, but it's not. It doesn't make sense. But it's, it's true. A time time management issue. It is. Then. Yes, and I think that it's also true that if somebody I know sends me something by somebody who doesn't have an agent, of course we'll look at it. And my colleagues would do the same mm-hmm. because it's got that filter, yeah. you know, and it's not the 400th manuscript that arrived that month. Yeah. You can't cope with it. Okay, so your role then is to identify talent and package it and get it in front of a big, a big audience and sell it. Uh, what else do you do? I spend quite a lot of time training people to do what I do. Cloning yourself? Well, I want them to do things that I don't do. I mean, I want them to publish some sorts of books that don't interest me personally, but that I think we as a publisher should publish. Like what? Well, I don't, I'm not that interested in television, but I think television is very interesting. Popular culture is very interesting. Television history is interesting. I wouldn't be the right editor for such a book, but we should have that book on the Penguin list. You know, that's an important part of our culture, and it would be good to have somebody writing. So I would hope one of my younger American colleagues who watch a lot of TV would do a book like that and be a better editor for it than I would be. You'd basically publishing what they know. Publishing things they're interested in, where they have a commitment that they know that they can sell to other people. I think one of the biggest challenges that young editors don't always understand is that you have to be so confident in what you're going to sell 
that you can persuade all these people around you in the company that it is as good as you say it is and that they can go out and pass the word. And I have my experiences that even when the book is not quite as good as the editor thinks, and I would say that also about books of my own, that if you have enough confidence... It's like anything. You can make it happen. I'm not saying it wouldn't happen even more so if it was absolutely as good as you thought it was, but even as long as it's pretty good, if you can get it across that you think it's good and package it correctly and help the author and hopefully... Well, and you think that it'll make money. Yes, yes. It's a business. That's We're being paid by Pearson to do this and we have to produce. What is it that will make money then? Do you have any... I think lots of things can make money. I think the best thing about being in publishing is you can publish the oddest things and make money and then you can publish sometimes very seemingly commercial things that don't do so well so like sex sells still well i don't know we've published books about sex maybe that's not the same thing that haven't worked more sort of you know we've we've tried to publish some very good sex books for young women you know sort of books about i think we had a yale or a harvard woman who um wrote a book for us about sex and you know good healthy sex and we didn't do well at all and you'd think there'd be a huge market for a book like that by a serious person you know who knows a lot about what she's talking so about so I I, I don't know but I think that lots of things can sell and you just never really know you just go with gut instinct you just hope that you've you've found something that's really interesting and that you can interest the media in it I mean that's the other piece of this whole puzzle isn't it how do you interest the media because Everybody and their dog is after these people to write about their books or their TV show or whatever it is. And that world has become very... The more conventional media world for publishing has become very difficult. Well, just this morning there was the uh, session on... Book reviewing. Book reviewing, Mm. which was was excellent. But, I mean, the whole... There's a campaign going on. The size and the frequency of uh, book review supplements in American newspapers is diminishing quite alarmingly. Absolutely. Last five years, it's become really difficult. Why is that? I think it's because most of these papers are in terrible financial shape. They claim, probably rightly, that publishers don't spend enough money advertising. Therefore, the less we spend on ads, the smaller the section becomes. So it's a horrible sort of doomed (laughs) cycle. And we can't afford to advertise. Their rates are too high. We don't see any bumps in sales usually when we advertise. We don't think it works. What does work? Word of mouth. Word of mouth. So you get a you get a small group of influential sort of opinion leaders who think a book is good and no, book I think clubs readers. And, yes, I think regular they, readers, book clubs, regular readers. Uh, how do you influence word of mouth? Do you you get, can't. You get That's why it's there. so amazing. We we published this book a year ago called The Memory Keeper's Daughter a first novel by a woman called Kim Edwards, who's an academic she teaches at the University of Kentucky. We published the book in Viking, quite well. Hard, hard cover. Hardcover, unheard of. Sold 20,000 hardcovers, which is nothing to brag about, but not a disaster. What's a bestseller, by the way? 50? A, a hardcover fiction bestseller. You yeah. probably have to be at least at 50. Depends yeah. what else is out at the time, you know, but 50, 70, 80, somewhere around there. And the same thing in England? Do you know? I don't know. Okay. I think it probably could be a bit lower, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Presumably. But they read more over there. Yes, they do. Yeah. So this book had done quite nicely. People liked the book. So we published it in Penguin. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. And two or three of my colleagues, who I trust a lot, also loved it. So we said to the sales department, you know, we think we've got something here. This is a fabulous book. 
And although Viking didn't sell a fantastic amount, we want to put out as close to 100,000 copies as we can. So we had this fantastic sales force. So they put out 80, 85,000 copies, which was very good. And here you mean that you actually published? You, you we shipped out shipped of the warehouse. In, yeah. We probably printed 100 and we shipped 85,000 copies. And a year, in other words, the sales force did a good job. They by did a very good job. Sellers on the idea yes. of taking this book that no one in a larger about. quantity than they would normally be able to do and get people to read it and so forth. Well, a year later, we've sold almost three million copies of that book. <laughs> now we did some advertising. We put we we pressured her to go on the road, which she didn't want to do, but we told her it was important, so she gave us two weeks. And we, we did a, a lot of online stuff, and that book just sold like wildfire. We need the name of that again. It's called <laughs> The Memory Keeper's Daughter <laughs> by Kim Edwards. Okay. And she's a wonderful woman, and it's a very exciting thing to see a book. I mean, that's, of course, what publishers dream about. Well, it's it? the Harry Potter thing. Yes, I mean, it's not at that, that level, that, but, but, still, it, but, but in, as trade paperback fiction, that's pretty much as big as it gets, I mean, mm-hmm. in that short period of time. That's pretty huge. So uh, who found that one? That book was originally acquired by a colleague of mine called Pam Dorman, and I read behind her and a very nice colleague called Lee Butler, who was the head of subrights, and we, all, we, we actually bought it based on like 150 pages, which is unusual for us yeah. with a novel. We usually want the whole thing, but we loved it. And we preempted it for quite a lot of money, I mean, quite a risky amount of money. And... Uh, you know, it's just been a huge... What is quite a risky amount? Some hundreds of thousands. To an unknown author, first... Yes. First. Well, she'd had one book of short stories that got beautiful reviews but sold nothing. And we were pretty certain that we could do something with this book. And we did pay a lot of money for it. So it was a risk. It was a very big... But this particular editor, Pam Dorman, had bought a book some years earlier called The Secret Life of Bees. I don't know if you know about that book. It was also a mega success. Yeah. Mega success. So she has a real eye for that very well-written middle-level woman's key, novel. That's middle-level, because you, you mean... You very accessible, yeah. very good storytelling, yeah. good use of language, great characters, very emotional books, actually. They're very emotional books. Those are the books that she identifies as the ones that are sell about. And they touch you, you know, when you're reading them. You make do. You cry. They do. They can make you cry. Mm. So that's the secret of being a great publisher, then. I suppose to identify that voice, you know, that writing that women will really understand. And it's women because women were two thirds of the readers. Mm. And I think there will, I mean, there probably are some men who buy this book and read it, but not many. Two thirds of the readership of uh, fiction, or just in general, or more, or is it higher for fiction? Well, they say that books, 60% of books are bought by women, don't they? A lot of those, of course, are women buying books for men. As opposed to men buying them for themselves, like I think women a lot of influencing their, yes, what they think their husband would like. Yes, yeah, women buy okay. a book by a novelist they know their husband likes or something, but they actually are the purchasers of these books. Um, I think the other thing that's very interesting to me and something maybe because of Secret Life of Bees is, and this goes back to what we were discussing before, which I find exciting, is Secret Life of Bees began to be read a lot by young adults, and my daughter read that book and loved it. And other young people began to read it. Teachers cottoned on to it and asked them all to read it in their summer vacations. That was a huge piece of the market for that book and still is being recommended a lot in high school for the summer reading list of the kids in the school. And Sue has done quite a lot of promotion to the teachers and, and to schools. Who's the author of The uh, Secret Life of Bees? Sue Monk Kid, her name yeah. is. 
And she's a wonderful woman, very good at talking to people. Mm-hmm. So. so that's an interesting expansion of the market, I think, to find books that cross over to that young adult. They're essentially adult books. That's a huge growth, isn't it? I mean, because of Harry Potter, it's, yes. first of all, you think it's a kid's book, but look at all the adults that are reading that yes, book. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think if you can find books, I mean, I have a young author called Matt Haig who wrote a wonderful book called The Dead Father's Club, which is a very funny sort of retelling of the Hamlet story. And I love this book. We published it in Viking, and we've done rather modestly, even though the bookselling community really liked it. So I'm waiting now for the paperback. I think in paperback, you know, when it's a $14 book, that it could really take off. But that is a book that I believe young people would like to read because it's told from an 11, 12-year-old boy's point of view and uh, quite witty and very moving. So I think that audience, you know, those probably 15, 16-year-olds, because they don't want to buy children's books, do they? They want to be in the adult section of the bookstore. Well, it's my daughter. She's 13. She loves yeah. Meg Cabot. And Meg Cabot started yes. off. She didn't start out writing you know, kids' yeah. books, but, but they're sort of right in that. Yes, that, that crossover. You know, where they're very well written and adults would enjoy reading them, yeah. but they're, they're not too complicated. Yeah. What else do you do as a publisher? Well, I, I supervise the sort of marketing and publicity on our list, you know, how we sell, how we choose to sell, what we, what we decide to, to focus on, what are the lead books going to be, where do we think we can really do better. So do you, get, do you, do you have to have a good handle on the zeitgeist? I suppose so. Because... You really need to be a weather vane, or you need to know what's going mm. on out there mm. and mm. put your thumb on it right before it hits. Mm. And that's why I worry that I don't watch enough television because, of course, that's such a good indicator. So a couple of nights ago, I persuaded my husband, much against his will, for us to watch the first in some new series called Starter Wife, which everybody was raving about. It was unbearable. It was unwatchable. Yeah. It was so terrible. Yeah, but I mean, the television watchers aren't necessarily readers. Though. No, but I think it is important for publishers. I mean, luckily I've got a couple of younger colleagues who watch a lot and always telling me, oh, Ugly Betty's, have you seen Ugly Betty? It's great, or whatever it is. And of course, I would never have seen any. So that's bad. I need to read. I need to see more TV. But I've got good... Co- and I try and read you magazines. you so much time in one's life. Well, exactly. So. And so you, you know. I try and read magazines, and I try and be in touch. I, I know a lot of foreign publishers. I try and keep track a bit of what they're doing. You know, they found anybody new. Mm. It's almost like, you know, you're casting these nets all the time as a publisher, aren't you, and hauling in the fish and hoping there's a lobster or two in the net. Mm. And you spend an awful lot of time sorting through those sardines. You know, it's like endless amounts of reading that never comes to anything. So it's awfully time-consuming. And, and sometimes one needs more time on the books. You know, once you've found the book, you've got to edit the book, publish the book, get to know the author, their agent... So it's a very intensive... I like that about it, the intensiveness of it. What do you mean intensive? Well, it's very... You're very, very, very focused in a very sort of intense and energising way on things. You know, a small group of people saying, we're going to make this work, and what are we going to so do? So it's, it's sort of like a little a team, team us against the world. It is. We're going we're we're gonna gonna to get this one, and we're going to be better than vintage and better than... You know, because I'm very competitive about other good publishers. Mm. And, and we're going to change the world. We're, we're going to really, we're going to get this author out there, and we're going to, you know, because this is important. So everyone's dream is is the Harry Potter model. I suppose it is. I mean, God, I've never found one like that. But um, but I suppose that's the that's the big 
the big uh, goal, but even more so, really, to find people who will be the penguin classics of the future, because that is our biz- that is our particular business. You know, Penguin's business is to find writers like John Cootsier, to find the next Kerouac, to find the next Kesey. Kerouac isn't that great a writer. Well, I'm not a huge fan, but lots of people in my place would disagree. I mean, you know, On the Road is, for many people, their sort of favourite book. But and it sells like crazy, it sells I guess, a lot. It, because it's on the, all of the academic lists. And I think it is a book that a lot of young people want to read. It's sort of a fame, it's an iconic book for a certain age group. Mm. But I think it's hard to find these people, because one of the things I thought was very interesting, I just came out of a Latina, a Latino panel that I was in before I came back to meet you, and there was a question in the audience about being a writer and what to do as a writer. And, of course, one of the writers on the panel very smartly, slightly cruelly said to this person, you have to write. It's not about finding an agent and a publisher. No, you have to have something have to, to sell. Write. Mm. Yeah, every day. You have to go and do it and have something to say that's important to you. Yeah, don't listen to what other people No. And, and I think that, that uh, the truth of the matter is my, my feeling is that there are an awful lot of people writing out there who are quite competent writers but they're not, they don't really have anything to say or nothing new. And as a publisher, what do you do with that? There's nothing to do with it because... No, because, I mean, the, the people that have said the great the great thing, written the great things, you, they're there and you can republish them. Yeah. And, and there are certain writers who are writing very well and very entertainingly, and that's important. I mean, reading is great entertainment. And I find that with detective fiction, that's my entertainment. I love them. And... I think if you can find a writer who writes well and can do that well, you are providing an awful lot of pleasure and entertainment. And you need writers like that. We need writers like that. But in the more literary area where you're talking about writers who you're publishing for the long haul as important, there aren't too many of those out there who are really amazing. I mean, once you start reading all this stuff, you know. I mean, you make mistakes. I mean, we've all turned down books that we wish we hadn't. So who who are going to be, in your opinion, who are going to be some of the classic greats uh, in the 50 years? You mean the current, the people the, who are currently current, yeah, being published? Current, current, future greats. Well, I suppose people like DeLillo, you know, are already considered a great writer. I think, you know, will be some of his books, White Noise, will be considered, you know, very important books. I mean, Jonathan Franzen, maybe. Um, you know, it's hard for me because one of the problems of my job is that I don't read nearly enough of what my competitors are publishing. Yeah. You know, I'm always saying to myself, oh, my God, I haven't read that. You know, and these books are successful and interesting. And I should be reading them. Yeah. yeah, and I should be reading them, yeah. but, you know. But you're busy reading stuff. That new stuff and authors be, yeah. of mine who've just delivered a new book. And uh, I publish a very wonderful uh, Irish writer called Sebastian Barry. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. He's a great writer. I think he was shortlisted. He was last year for a long, long way. His book about World War One, which I thought was a wonderful book, hard to sell here. Sells very well in well, sells very well in Ireland, Um, but here has been a very tough sell. We've published four books now. It's not a happy picture in terms of the numbers, and getting him reviewed is very difficult. It's very difficult. You know, you just have to stay in there. And How do you get them reviewed? How do you get authors reviewed then? Well, I don't... I, I mean, mainly our publicity people are trying to get the review attention, but in, in the last year or so, I have begun myself to try and make a lot of personal contacts in the reviewing community. So you, you pick up the phone, you say, let's get together for, for lunch? Yes, I mean, I've been trying to get to know Sam Tannenhaus, and, of course, they don't want you to get to know them. No, no, no. 
I mean, he said to me for a couple of years that he wouldn't have lunch with me. Finally, he said he would have lunch with me. So we had a very nice lunch, and we made it very personal. I didn't push anything. And? And now he answers my emails. Yeah, but does, he, I, does he do reviews of your, more well, reviews of your books? Well, it's hard for me to say, but he, he has begun. He's done a couple of things which I'm very pleased about. I don't think they're just about me, but maybe other editors too. More trade paperback originals are being reviewed in the book oh, review. Okay. Uh, I published a very interesting New Zealand novel, um, called Astrid and Veronica as a trade paperback original, a book I loved, and he did review it in the book review. And he's doing. How, how long after have you had your lunch? Um, I think four or six weeks, but that was must have been in the works before that lunch because it was too close. Okay. <laughs> so picking so, up the phone, but, it, but trying to a little bit, but it's hard because they don't want to hear from well, you. Well, no, and in a way, you know, sure, they don't want to uh, compromise themselves. No, and I understand that. Yeah. But on the other hand, they are faced with mountains of galleys. Mm-hmm mountains right and I think what they do from what I hear is they look at the imprints of most books you know Farrah Strauss, Knopf, maybe Viking, mm. maybe Vintage Penguin and Trade Paperback and say those are the best imprints that start there well, but yeah, they can't you know, neglect everybody else no. can they so they can't just review Farrah Strauss and Knopf and yeah but it's interesting though uh, because depending on what their audience is yeah they're going to go to those houses that they they know have got mm-hmm. a very good reputation of picking that's great right. work that's right and, and, and publishing it that's right yeah. yeah so what else do you do what else do I do numbers budgeting financial meetings editing spend time editing still occasionally working with younger younger colleagues as well trying to teach them to be mean editors Sebastian Mary says to me oh you've got a relentless eye but that's what we're meant to do right that's what we do and uh, so that's what I do I don't have very much free time Mm. but I suppose that's what I've chosen Mm. sort of masochistic really there's just too much of it that's the problem there's always too much of it. Do so you feel guilty that you're you not feel sort of you feel of sort of overwhelmed sometimes, especially when authors are out there waiting. That's the worst. You know, authors you've published, they send in a new book, they're waiting for you to read it and tell them what you think. And surprisingly, even with authors who you've published for years who are hugely successful, like John Mortimer, who I've published forever, he is always waiting for those phone calls. It drives me crazy. A man with all that success and all that self-knowledge presumably of how good he is oh he still doesn't he's still, he still waits in a way for, that's charming he still waits for that phone call it's charming though I suppose so I think there's something slightly sad about it for me yeah, yeah. 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 at least he hasn't put a monster ego no yeah. no that's sort of interesting as an editor could you give us your top three greatest novels ever written Oh, I don't think I could. Your, yes, your top yes, favourite. Yes, yes. I suppose one of the, my top favourite would have to be Disgrace. Definitely right at the top. Anna Karenina, a book I absolutely loved. And what would be my third? I think, well, I suppose it'd have to be something like King Lear. Wonderful. Thank you very yeah. much for your time. Pleasure. Catherine Court is the president and publisher of Penguin Books. Penguin Books, that's what? Paperback and Plume? Plume and also a paperback. Both divisions of Penguin Group USA. Wonderful. Thanks for your time. Pleasure.